0: Is the 2020 election more than a referendum on the current president? Climate One conversations feature energy executives and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The conventional wisdom on this fall's election
1: is that once again, it will come
0: down to a handful of voters in a handful of states.
1: This is a game of small numbers. Going out there and hunting down these small pools of persuadables is critical because we're in an electoral college game. Rick Wilson is a longtime
0: Republican political strategist who got his start campaigning with the first President Bush. He's editor-at-large at the Daily Beast and author of Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. For persuadable voters, personality usually matters more than policy, including climate
2: climate change is not a top-tier issue for these swing voters. It kind of falls in the middle between not being a hoax and not being an emergency. Basically, it's kind of a problem that's out there.
0: Rich Tao is president of Engages, a communications firm. For the past 15 months, he's conducted focus groups with swing voters in key districts, including Youngstown, Ohio, Appleton, Wisconsin, and Erie, Pennsylvania. But not everyone is convinced that concentrating on this small group of voters is the most effective strategy.
3: I would rather focus on people who have skin in the game, uh, pun intended, and who are ready to hit the pavement.
0: Tiffany Cross is co-founder and managing editor of The Beat DC, an author of Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. She previously ran the Washington Bureau of BET News and covered Capitol Hill for CNN. She's skeptical that this year's election will be determined by a handful of voters in battleground states.
3: I think anybody who's still laser focused on swing voters is operating from a playbook of yesteryear. Um, I question even this whole theory of swing voters. I think if somebody is still on the fence at this point about who to vote for, uh, then they are emphatically not a swing voter. Uh, I I do think there are people, um, you know, we have to look at it through the lens of this is not a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but a choice between Joe Biden or stay home for a lot of people. So I think with all the attention that you hear in the media landscape that's focused on swing voters, it, they, it feels a bit out of step. It, it feels like a political playbook from 20 years ago. And perhaps if we paid attention to the voting trends of midterms that we would know that swing voters do not necessarily determine presidential outcomes.
0: Rick Wilson, Donald Trump has never shown an interest in growing his base, and his support has never exceeded 50% of the American people. Uh, Bill Kristol recently tweeted, quote, you look at the polls and think he can't win, but Trump's path to victory doesn't depend on persuading Americans. It depends on voter suppression, mass disinformation, foreign interference, and unabashed use of executive branch power to shape events
1: and perceptions. Do you agree with Bill Kristol? All of those things are correct. And it is a a moment where you have to look at the electoral map as it is. This is a battle in the Electoral College. It is not a national election at all. I know how California is going to vote. I know how Alabama is going to vote. I know how Washington State is going to vote. And I know how Arkansas is going to vote. These are not states that are in play. So the model of swing states um still exists. In those swing states we have places that move from remarkably Obama to Trump. We have voter pools in states like Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, North Carolina, Arizona and Florida where there are a meaningful number of voters who inexplicably move from Obama to Trump and in 2018 they move from Trump to Democrats. So it's really not a matter of swing voters as a pool nationally. It is a matter of the that these particular states on the electoral college map have a much different set of of impetuses and character than you might think with the in the big blue or the big red states. So when I look at a place like Michigan, I see a pool of voters where suburban female voters in Oakland and Macomb County outside of Detroit who went for Donald Trump, they held their nose in sixteen and voted for Donald Trump. In twenty eighteen, they said no more. I can't handle this. I don't want my kids growing up watching this kind of person. So they voted against Trump's Trump's enablers from Congress. They voted against Republican candidates down the ticket because they could. Now, those folks are going to be back in play this year. Some will be pulled to the tribal necessities of our politics because both sides, and Tiffany's right, we have two intense party bases in this country. Some will be pulled back to that intense Republican base. Some will be pulled back to that intense Democratic base but they are identifiable through survey research, polling, focus groups, data analysis, voter file analysis. And this is a game of small numbers. Look, the the president won election in three states by 77,000 votes. He won Florida, a state with 20 million people in it by 150,000 votes. So going out there and hunting down these small pools of persuadables is is critical because we're in an electoral college game. That game is not about the popular vote. The game is not about the national mood. That is about going into a place like Florida and flipping 150,000 votes, or a place like Michigan and flipping 70, or 30,000 votes, or a place like Wisconsin flipping 43,000 votes. So all these places that were narrow adventures in 2016, we saw that in a lot of those places, they were former Obama states and voters. We've got to flip them back, keep them, and we've got to keep them away from Trump in 20.
0: Rich Tao, you've been talking to these people for 15 months, You know, swing voters.
2: Who are they? Where are they? What's a profile? What do they think? It's a great question. So it's been a fascinating exercise, crisscrossing the upper Midwest uh, for a year and then now the last few months doing it via Zoom. And I'll tell you there are a few characteristics that stand out about these swing voters. The first thing is I would describe them as serial presidential monogamous. They fell in love with Bush. After eight years, they fell out of love, fell in love with Obama. They loved Obama for eight years, fell out of love with him and loved Trump. And for me, the question is, are they on a four-year trajectory or an eight-year trajectory? The second thing I'd say is that not all, but a sizable number are what you call classic low information voters. They get their news from local news sources, local TV, local websites. The majority are not getting it from CNN, MSNBC, or Fox. So what they know about what's going on in the wider world, uh, wider policy conversation is actually quite limited. Most of them have never heard of the Green New Deal, for example. So as we think about who they are, you have to understand that their personalities are such that they're not driven by policy as much as they're driven also by personalities, and they're driven by a desire for change. They're sort of perpetually dissatisfied. They start off satisfied, the satisfaction wanes, and it wanes to the point where they're looking to take on something new. You know, there's always a classic, you know, are they Coke or are they Pepsi? They're both. They like both kinds of soda. They can vote for a D or vote for an R, depending upon who attracts them more. It's not a matter of either or; it's an and. And they just have to decide which one is more attractive. And those are the things I think are, are key attributes of those folks. Tiffany
0: Cross, you still think that that uh, yeah, that there's too much attention played on these on these what you call them mythical swing voters?
3: Uh, I do. I Look, I think, um, and I take Rick's point for sure about the um, electoral map, but I think still, if you look at 2016 and 2018 and even uh, 2012, this Obama-Trump swing voter, when you look at the reason why they jumped from Obama to Trump, the chief reason among them was they all held racial animus. They had hostile views on race. And so for me, if, if that is what we're calling a swing voter, it does trouble me that that candidates get it drilled into their head that that's the person you need to go after. And there's data to back this up. There was a study done by UCLA, Princeton, and UC Irvine that uh, disaggregated voters who who switched, who were the Obama-Trump voters, and they found they were not likely to be suffering economically, but suffering from animus on race issues. So I am just a bit uncomfortable at trying to appeal to that Uh, wing or base of the party, particularly when you saw in 2018, when you tried to energize the Democratic base, when you spoke a language directly to people, um, they paid attention and they became um, engaged in the process. There was a lot of first-time voters, a lot of younger voters. And then to Tyler's point about they get a lot of their news from local news. I think that's a huge issue, because on the national stage, sure, we have Fox News, and they're problematic. But at the local level, you do have Sinclair Broadcasting, which is extremely conservative. They mandate scripts that their anchors read. They tailor their messaging that favors conservative, right-wing Republican messaging. And that feeds, by osmosis, this Trump narrative about this country. So, you know, when we look at what happened on the Democratic side of politics, Um, at at voters who resurrected Joe Biden's campaign, and then when you take a step back and look at the larger landscape, at people who can be excited um, and engaged in this process, and then when you consider um, what all these people have to leapfrog over when it comes to GOP-led voter suppression, when it comes to foreign election interference that specifically targets uh, communities of color, I, I just think what would happen if we focused on that and not people who switched from Obama to Trump
0: Rick,
1: Rick Wilson, is there uh, is there an unconscious bias in this? But the swing voters that we saw in eighteen were Republican women crossing over to vote for Democrats. That's why the Republicans lost forty one seats. Those are the swing voters I'm looking for. I want to hold on to those so they don't drift back into the Republican column. And there are there's a there's an interesting pool, and Rich may be able to speak to this. There is an interesting pool of. Independent men and democratic men who are who tend to be less than college educated who tend to be uh, a little more exurban who tend to be union workers who you can get them back by being a fighter for them you can you can work them by being a fighter for them they feel like everybody gets to d c and screws them and with Trump because his portrayal of himself was so broad and so Vivid for them, they thought he was going to be the one that saved them, and he didn't. And you know the trade deals hurt them, and his handling of COVID hurt them. So there are people out there, and believe me, there are plenty of people motivated by race in the in the voter pool. Plenty of them. You're never going to get them anyway. You know Joe Biden or not, white guy white guy or not, you're not going to get them. They were motivated against Obama very much so, uh, in a lot of those cases. Um, they, those folks tend to be older at this point, thank goodness, right? Um, but they're there in the swing states. Keep in mind, these Obama Trump voters that in, in, in our experience
2: in doing the swing voter project, we also have interviewed Romney Clinton voters and those folks almost to a person detest Donald Trump. So I wouldn't worry too much about them going back to to voting for Trump again. The, the, the animus there is off the charts. It's the Obama Trump voters who I think are the key to the swing voter component, not the Romney Clinton voters. Rich will issues matter in this election, or
0: is this just a r- referendum on Donald Trump? And will issues matter, and which ones?
2: Well, I would say that issues are will, will matter. Uh, the question is, of course, what's going on in the country come October and early November, and whether we're still in the midst of a pandemic, what the economy looks like, what racial relation, race relations look like in the U.S., all that's going to matter, plus whatever else might erupt between now and then. course, we have no idea. So yes, I think issues will matter. I think one other thing I would say, though, is that I wouldn't call this entire election a referendum on Trump. I think it's a huge mistake in targeting swing voters to say that, oh, we'll just make Trump as miserable as possible looking to swing voters, and they'll have to take Biden. And in talking to a number of these people, you still have to make a case for Joe Biden. The thing I've uncovered, which has stunned me and I'm not easily stunned, I've been doing this almost 20 years, is how focus group after focus group folks of these Obama-Trump voters know almost nothing about Biden's biography. They know that he was Obama's vice president for eight years, and that's about it. They don't know he was a senator. They don't know he's from Delaware. They don't know anything about his family background. So to me, he is a tabula rasa to a massive segment of these swing voters. And so I'm not so convinced that you can beat something with nothing. Biden has to define himself for these folks in order for enough of them to vote for Biden for him to
3: win. I would just say I would add, Greg. That that's probably true across the, the board, Rich. I, I think um, there are people on both sides of the divide who don't know a lot. I think you know all of us on this panel um, consume the minutia of government and you know read eight papers before the sun comes up. Most people out in the country are not doing that. They're getting kids to school and figuring out how to pay their mortgage, etc. Exactly. Um, but even the people who do know Biden, I would say, are not overly excited about his candidacy. I mean, when you look at the numbers and break down the data, it is mostly a vote against trump not necessarily a vote for biden which i will say concerns me because if he's not an excitable candidate and you have to consider this new electorate that's a part of this process now and for them obama was their floor not their ceiling and so previously um you know people could only see the possible, and now people are seeing the impossible. And they're asking, how do we reimagine America? How do we reimagine every part of democracy that we thought was written in stone? And so I think Biden has made um, some Mistakes here or there where he's tried to make safe choices and tried to walk the middle of the road. And I would argue in this time, that's how you become political roadkill. I think his uh, candidacy is going to hedge heavily on his running mate. So I really hope that he picks a running mate who can excite the masses and people who are used to having a president who, you know, can inspire you and and was an orator like a, a. Sunday morning Baptist preacher. I don't think there's enough younger people in the electorate who realize that's a a once-in-a-lifetime type uh, candidate, a a once-in-a-lifetime type president. I think there are a lot of people who have an Obama hangover um, and and think that, you know, we need somebody who's going to inspire us like that. And politics and policy are not always inspiring. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes you have to do the work and actually read about people's platform and how it speaks to you. So I, I just, I say that to say that I really hope Biden, the Biden campaign understands and realizes that, I think if he tries to make a safe choice this go around, that it could be incredibly devastating to the Democratic Party.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the 2020 election. Coming up, getting swing voters to think more about climate-connected policies.
2: When I asked them, you know, if you knew that, that this was a problem in your neighborhood, how upset would you be? They were off the charts upset. And if you can point to a specific rollback that undermined water quality or air quality where these people live and say, that's because of the Trump administration, that would be very powerful. That's
0: up next when Climate One continues.
3: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate.
0: Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part, we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow
3: TED Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the upcoming election with Tiffany Cross, co-founder and managing editor of The Beat D.C., Rich Tao, who runs the Swing Voter Project, and Rick Wilson, a longtime Republican strategist and one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, a political action committee of disaffected Republicans dedicated to defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism.
1: Well, this campaign runs in basically three columns. The first column is what we do very, very well, which is keep Donald Trump personally off balance. We make sure that Donald Trump is watching our Twitter feed 24 hours a day. He knows there's going to be something new coming down the pike at him all the time. So that'll run through the campaign. We're also prosecuting the case against Donald Trump because we've, from our research, we've seen that there are voters who may dislike him, may, may think he's doing a bad job sort of generically, but we've now got things like COVID where there is a price tag in the in terms of lives and in terms of our economy, and we're going to articulate that in the ways that, as former Republicans, we're very skilled at. We're going to focus that very, very fine set of tools we've developed over a long period um, to communicate that message to voters so they really have a clear choice that it's not just a partisan question, that it is, it is a demonstration of how incompetent and corrupt and, in, and unstable Donald Trump is. And the final part of this will be more persuasion. There will be more uplift. That's going to be much later in the process, though, because for right now, there's a value added to this, to keeping Donald Trump's numbers in the 40 and sub 40 range. That that prohibits him from getting a big lift under his wings. That prohibits him from getting to takeoff speed. That prevents him from starting to deploy the resources that he's been raising in a smart way. We've been making them burn money in all kinds of places because they are undisciplined and they can't change that. That is the character of their candidate and their campaign. It would be great if we, you know, go back and had fights about, I don't know, marginal tax rates or, or what's the carbon level in the atmosphere going to be? It would be great if we did that. But at the end of the day, more often than not, if I can come out with a hammer and turn the other guy into a villain or a stooge or an incompetent, I'm going to win. And and that's just a, a harsh reality of politics. People like to hear things. They like to hear, I've got a plan. But honestly, you know, when Elizabeth Warren came out with a healthcare plan that was 650 pages long, all I could think of was, I don't know how much time and effort they put into that, but about eight people are going to read that. And three of them are Trump opposition researchers who are going to find the 10 things in it that scare the hell out of voters. So, you know, those sort of fine-grained policy things almost never have the impact that campaigns with, with that are full of hope and
3: optimism believe. I, but Can I just I say, I agree with you completely, Rick, um, and I don't deal with as many voters on, on your side of the aisle, but I just wanna say, I think on the Democratic side, particularly voters of color, I think there's a lot of attention paid to policy. Here's the problem getting to the actual policy in a digestible way. I think Democrats have a very challenging time of making messaging um, comprehensible. And so, you know, when Donald Trump could get up before an audience and say, we're gonna build the wall, there isn't a lot of intellectual curiosity there to say, but how, and who's gonna pay for it? And how is that going to work? And so you can say these very simplistic elementary slogans and have people consume them as though they're the gospel. When I talk to, you know, Tens of thousands of of, of voters over the years um, across the country covering them, um, working on campaigns, et cetera. There are a lot of questions about policy. And they because um, these mostly marginalized, disenfranchised communities are overly impacted, so they can't afford to not pay attention to policy. The challenge is someone um, is not going to read through a white paper. They're not going to, you know confirm everything they hear on television and so a lot of people go off word of mouth i mean i even had you know family members uh, after obama got elected you know who definitely pay attention to policy but we're not necessarily experts in politics. And so, you know, they would say we voted for Obama and now, you know, the potholes on the streets are fixed and, you know, the school board changes this. And it's like, yeah, Obama doesn't have anything to do with that, but you are very focused on what your neighborhood is like, what the school is like, where your kids go to school, what hiring is like, what the economy looks like. So I, I don't know how it is on the Republican side, but I do think there is some attention paid to policy, um, but they you know, not necessarily political connoisseurs. um, And they don't necessarily speak Beltway speak as well.
0: Alex Cruz is a 45-year-old married man who lives outside Tampa. He grew up in Brooklyn and says over the years he's voted for several Democratic presidential candidates and sat out a few other elections. He also often votes third party when there's one on the ballot. This November, Cruz says he's still not quite sure what he's going to do.
4: When I was more ignorant to politics, I may have been drawn to a personality type, how the person spoke, the mannerisms, or something, without knowing everything that was underneath the whole system of how it works, and politics, and voting. Knowing, too, about the Democratic Party, apparently the Working Persons Party, for people of color, for minority and I felt like I was in that demographic growing up, being a Hispanic male. Seems like every administration has gone against everything that I would believe in. I don't believe in war or the war on drugs or war on anything. And so who do you vote for, right? There's only two people on the ticket. Biden really represents that system status quo, but. Trump supposedly doesn't, but at the same time, he still does status quo things. So I don't think it matters who you vote for. My plans are to write in a candidate. I still believe in the power of voting. And one idea is to have people from the bottom up get into politics and create parties of their own grassroots that oppose the two-party system that we currently have. Maybe through several years, we can accomplish actual policy changes, environmental changes, economic changes that we need to see before it's too late.
0: That was Alex Cruz who lives in the Tampa Bay area. Rick Wilson, um, you know, we have never had a, you know, we have Coke and Pepsi. We don't, we have more choice for soda and a lot of things, toothpaste than we do political parties in this country. Other democracies have more choice. Why don't you spend all that money on, you know, creating a third party or you have to consider that to give people really more choice. Maybe I will.
1: No, look, I, I think we're at an inflection point in our country where a nationalist, populist, Trumpist party is born out of the wreckage of the GOP, where a center-right party is born out of whatever comes you know, from the kind of things we're doing and other, and other folks are working on to try to restore limited government, constitutional adherence, et cetera. And I think the Democrats face a similar challenge where, as Tiffany can certainly tell you, there is enormous, astounding energy on the progressive left. It is very fired up. Now, the flip side of that is there, is there is, for the Democrats, more competence and campaign electoral experience and ability to raise the money you need to compete and deliver and win on the sort of more Clinton-Obama axis of the party. And as I said to somebody the other day, they're like, why is it you guys are able to do the kind of things that Trump campaign won't do and Biden campaigns won't do? I said, the secret of a good set of consultants is that we don't care what you think and we're going to get to the X. We're going to get to the goal mark. And you know, the Democrats, to their advantage in 20 uh 18, learned you couldn't do a top-down model. You couldn't say, okay, we're gonna only run AOC style candidates in Western Pennsylvania and and Arizona and Florida. We're gonna only run AOCs. Instead, the speaker very wisely said, Okay, well, we'll run AOC candidates in places they can win, and we'll run Connor Lamb candidates in places they can win. So the choice in a party like that is do you stay as a sort of messy coalition or do you hive off into a Bernie Sanders populist style party, um, which could win in a few places, and a, and a Clinton-Obama style sort of broadly center-left technocratic liberalism party. It's a really, I, th- I think that inflection point is coming because the frustration on the progressive side is so enormous with the, the incremental approach of the centrist Democrats, and on the Republican side. That idea of Trumpism is a nationalist populist movement is very addictive to them. They want that. And they don't want to go back to the old, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush thousand points of light or, or compassionate conservatism. They don't want that. They want a war. We're talking about the 2020
0: election and Climate One with Rick Wilson, a longtime Republican strategist and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Rick Tao, uh, Rich Tao runs a swing voter project that conducts focus groups with Obama-Trump voters in the upper Midwest. And Tiffany Cross, co-founder and managing editor of The Beat DC. Rich Tao, I want to get to climate and environment because while there's this, uh, this cycle is engaging, we have these macro, you know, issue of climate change, do people, swing voters you're talking to, do they care about the climate? Do they care about the environment? Does that, where does that rank in terms of issues, Rich Tao?
2: It's a great question. So I've been asking about climate and environmental issues throughout the entirety of the project. A couple things stand out. The first is that climate change is not a top tier issue for these swing voters. It kind of falls in the middle between not being a hoax and not being an emergency. Basically, it's kind of a problem that's out there. So, if you ask people, is it your number one issue? No one's going to say it's their number one issue, but a number of them will put it in their top five, but it's not one or two. The thing that we uncovered to me that is the most interesting, and I think from a campaign perspective, looking at it from Biden's side, is that when we ask people to evaluate the rollbacks that the Trump administration has advanced in the course of its term, that the folks in our group, one, very, were generally did not know about them at all, hadn't heard about them, but when they learned about them, discovered that they were remarkably negative. And we found that when we gave them a list of 17 of these items and had them score them on a scale from zero to 10 about how much they supported or opposed them, they opposed all 17. And some of them, it scores at like one, one and a half. Most of them were things related to clean water and clean air, particularly clean water. And when I asked them, you know, if you knew that that this was a problem in your neighborhood, how upset would you be? They were off the charts upset. So I think the opportunity potentially, if people in the environmental movement were to seize it, would be to make a case not about the rollbacks in the abstract, but the rollbacks as they affect people in the swing states. And if you can point to a specific rollback that undermine water quality or air quality where these people live and say that's because of Donald Trump or the Trump administration, that would be very powerful because it would be a way to tie the things that they don't like about the president to something that affects them personally.
0: Tiffany Cross, E&E News recently reported that Chevron's playing the race card via communication firms called CRC Advisors, warning communities of color that white people are trying to take away their jobs in the energy industry by advancing climate policies. Uh, what did you, what's your response to that?
3: I think it's unfortunate, not surprising, but definitely uh, unfortunate, uh, especially when when you think about how communities of color are disproportionately impacted um, by climate. And you consider folks in uh, New Orleans, you know, who are impacted by the deep water spill. You think of folks in the low country, South Carolina, who are worried about um you know water supply there you think of folks in Long Beach California um or people in Flint who have all the water they can that was you know literally poisoning them so it's sad that a corporation uh would try to pin this um as you know one group versus the other with nefarious intention but i think this is not anything new and something that has consistently happened um these you know communities have long since even before jim crow been in red line communities that are uh, overly impacted by pollution so yeah I, i think it's unfortunate but i was happy that that story came to light but again though the challenge is when you present um climate issues to people who are dealing with so much already, Um, people who are worried about paying their mortgage, people who are worried about violence and unrest, people who suffer from economic anxiety. Um, I I just think it's hard to make the case to them that this is something that's impacting your life um, long term when they're worried about what's impacting their life this very moment. There have been some great work by people to make that connection. Um, It needs to continue. It doesn't get a lot of coverage in media, certainly not through the lens of the rising majority of the country. So uh, I bet if you ask 10 people, what did you think about Chevron um, being disingenuous in this ad? Most people have no idea that that ever happened.
0: Rich Tao, have you tested it all sort of the, you know, greening the recovery, the COVID recovery, whether people want to see uh, a move away from fossil fuels as the country comes out of COVID? Does that have appeal?
2: Um, one thing I've discovered in my years of doing message testing on a variety of issues is that the idea that you want to conflate multiple causes, no matter how good they are, is very off putting to a large swath of the American populace. In other words, people want you to work on issue X and address that issue and not necessarily leverage in a separate issue, however much merit it might have, because it gets in the way of solving the problem at hand. So when I ask the swing voters, for example, about addressing clean energy and having Congress spend money uh, on clean energy as a way to jumpstart the economy in the midst of this pandemic, they looked at me like I was crazy. Their response was, no, if you're going to spend the money, there are people unemployed, they need money, they need income, they need jobs. Focus on that. Don't try to specifically help one industry or one sector to perhaps the disadvantage of others. And it was an issue of fairness. And for them, that just didn't seem fair. So I'm, classically, Americans have a silo mentality when it comes to public policy. And that's one reason why they get bent out of shape over SSI benefits when it comes to Social Security, for example. And I think that you have to think about that in every message that you have about climate it, is that for, if you're going to focus on climate, focus on it or focus on clean energy, if that's your message. But to intermingle other concerns into those, again, I'm not, this isn't my, necessarily my personal opinion. This is what I hear from respondents all the time which is focus on the issue at hand and don't mix issues together.
0: Tiffany Cross, there's a real uh, uh, energy right now on, on the left about you know climate justice and intersectionality and dealing with economic inequality and fossil fuels and housing, et cetera. So your response there to what uh, Rich just said, that that alienates a lot of key electoral, key voters.
3: Yeah, I, I can see that because um, I, I think that even the wing on the left who's, you know, laser focused on climate, uh, even with AOC that, I mean, she ran on, on that issue and that was a, a big issue for her. I, I still think there, and, and I, I say this with respect, it's, it's you know, but I still think there's a level of, of ignorance among voters when it comes to climate change. And when I say ignorance, I really just mean lack of knowledge. And so um, I, I don't know that if, you know to Rick's point, if you put something to someone in consumable terms that it would alienate them, I think it comes more from people, a lack of understanding, from people not being focused on the issue or not recognizing how the issue disproportionately impacts them. Um, but even on the Democratic side, from the politics that I've been involved in, I would still say the environmentalists represent a very small portion of the party. Uh, And that's not to say that everybody else doesn't care about it, but it's just not their issue. And when you think about all the things that are vying for our attention right now, all the issues that the country and the globe is dealing with, uh, there's a level where people can get to where you're asking them to care about everything, so they care about nothing. So I think that's Rich's point about alienating some of those voters.
0: You're listening to a conversation about this November's presidential election. This is Climate One. Coming up, why messaging and on the ground organizing still counts.
1: The country is not as woke as Democrats often think it is. Even in places where they think it's woke, it's not as woke. And so doing the nut and bolt campaign stuff really matters. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're looking ahead to the 2020 election with journalist Tiffany Cross, author of Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy, political communications expert Rich Tao, and longtime Republican political strategist Rick Wilson, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Return now to our lightning round. Tiffany Cross, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Ronald Reagan?
3: <laughs> a myth. Uh, I, I say he, he was a myth.
0: Okay. Uh, Rick Wilson, what's the first uh, one word or phrase that comes to mind when I say Mary Trump?
1: Devastating.
0: New book coming out. Uh, Rich Tao, one word or phrase uh, when I say The Lincoln Project?
1: Well, I got to be careful with
2: that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Patriot. Rick Wilson, what comes to mind when I say Georgia Governor Brian Kemp?
2: Evil.
1: Evil.
0: Uh, Rich Tao, the person Joe Biden should tap as his VP if he wants to win over swing voters in the Rust Belt. Here's my
2: answer. Doesn't matter.
0: Tiffany Cross, the person Joe Biden should tap as his VP if he wants to excite Black voters who have that Obama hangover.
3: There is nobody, but for lack of a perfect option, I'd say Senator Kamala Harris.
0: These are true or false. Uh, Tiffany Cross, uh, true or false, you don't like making people uncomfortable. <laughs> false. <laughs> uh, uh, Rich Tao, true or false, liberals have much better insight into the way conservatives think than vice versa.
2: False. Conservatives understand liberals far better than liberals understand conservatives. Tiffany
0: Cross, true or false, the business model of corporate owned media significantly constrains political discourse in the United States. True. Uh, Rick Wilson, true or false, you have solar on the roof of your home in the Sunshine State. False. Tiffany Cross, true or false, your next car will be electric.
3: I'm carless, so false.
0: (laughs) Uh, Rich Tao, true or false, some swing voters you talk with think EVs and solar power are cool.
2: Yeah, I think so. They see it as the future. They're, They're definitely inclined toward wanting to see that. The issue for them is cost.
0: Uh, Rick Wilson, true or false, Sarah Palin's nomination as vice president in 2008 helped usher in an era of no nothingness and trivialized American politics. Sadly true. Last one for uh, Rick Wilson, true or false, Republican leaders Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham sold America to Trump for a few dozen federal judges. Truth. All right. Thanks for getting through the uh, lightning round. We have some questions. Uh, Lauren online has a question. Please talk about voter suppression. Rick Wilson, this seems to be just like shamelessly out in the open. It's not even in, you know, they're not even hiding it anymore.
1: For an awful long time in this country, voter suppression and voter fraud were both marginal activities. There were individual counties and individual people who would either try to prevent voting or who would engage in voter fraud. It has scaled up to a point now where where the implications. What's why what I call Brian Kemp evil, because as a limited government constitutionalist conservative, who who believes in individual liberty and and your right to vote being one of the most fundamental rights that we have, engaging in the kind of behavior that we're seeing there, the kind of behavior we're seeing out of the the Trump campaign in the White House trying to prevent early voting, especially in a time of a pandemic, it has reached a point I think where where a constitutional remedy in the future is is may well be required because it is it has really gone to the point of of you know things like we're seeing today in Kentucky with one polling place for almost six hundred thousand voters that's insanity
3: can I just yeah. can I sure. Tif- yeah. Tiffany cross so I love Rick and I hate to disagree with my friend Rick, but I have to say, Rick, I don't think there's been an uptick. This has been something that's so prevalent, particularly in the African American experience. Uh, in our entire uh, political engagement in this country. I don't think you can ask any Black voter, has there been an uptick in the past two years, four years, 10 years? I think, you know, throughout history, there has been a concerted effort to make the path to the ballot box very narrow. Brian Kemp didn't just start this two years ago. Um, His entire career was predicated on voter suppression. He literally jailed people. Um, There were in Michigan during the 2016 election, there were 75,000 people in Detroit to have their ballots turned out. Detroit happens to be the most populous uh, city in the country, uh, overwhelmingly comprised of of black voters. You could go into every um, local uh, legislature and look at their practices and the majority of the states, when you look at things that were designed to be laws, look at Mississippi, how they have designed how people are elected. It is specifically designed so Black votes are either diluted or completely left out of the process. I think why there may be thoughts that um, voter suppression has had an uptick is because the media for the first time started paying attention, whereas previously they used to just bake it into the cake. Um, They would just assume that voter suppression was happening and the only time they would cover it is if a race was competitive. Uh, during the 2018 elections, there was not a lot of voter suppression stories. In fact, the Tyndall Report, which covers news stories, found that between um, September and November in 2018, across all the major networks, there were less than 10 stories on voter suppression. And we all know there was a lot of voter suppression happening in, in, in 2018. So Rick and I both agree that it's an issue. I just wanted to make the point that it's certainly not a new issue. And it's been something that, um, black communities but a lot of other communities of color have been grappling with for a very very long time since my,
1: my point about the scale up is particularly about the white house uh and the trump campaign trying to suppress mail-in voting now
3: yeah. you're absolutely
1: right tiffany uh, uh, especially for african-american voters over the over the decades but they're trying to suppress early voting and absentee voting yes. at scale talking right. nationally now where where they're looking to disenfranchise. Uh,
3: White people. That's why well, it became a story. Of, tens of
1: millions of people in states that they choose, uh, that they feel at risk in. And Georgia is one of the states they now feel at risk in. And that's why Kemp has been very much front and center in efforts to turn down the ability to vote and to select um, lobbyists, uh, uh, to the, select a voting system given to him by a bunch yeah, of lobbyists yeah. who are not friends of, of, of representative, representative government. Let's just say that. Patricia online has a question: Can we
0: revive the Voting Rights Act, and how?
3: That would take a lot. I mean, you got when SCOTUS killed Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, uh, it it devastated the voting process. And I, I think the, uh, part of the reason why people didn't realize what an issue voter suppression was until there were mail in ballots is because not everybody recognizes what voter suppression looks like. And so, where you saw in Wisconsin people standing in line in the cold and the rain. Uh, and the networks paid attention and said, oh, this is insane. Well, that happens every election cycle, state, federal, and local elections in most Black neighborhoods. They they purge lists. They shut down um, polling sites. So every time it's time to vote, you have people waiting in line for hours. It, It wasn't like it didn't exist before, but once the court killed Section 5, which said that these uh, municipalities, which previously had a history of voter suppression, had to check in at the federal level before adjusting their laws, where they found loopholes in that before, now they can be out in the open about it. Um, even when it comes to gerrymandering and redrawing districts, I mean, partisan uh, gerrymandering is not illegal, but racial gerrymandering, gerrymandering most certainly is, and you even see a lot of that happening, something um, Attorney General Eric Holder is pursuing.
0: But Rick Wilson, you say that liberals are actually in a little bit of a fantasy land about uh, the, the causes of their uh, setbacks, gerrymandering, the Koch brothers, Citizens United. Tell us about that that liberal bubble that you think that they um,
1: you you mentioned in your book. I have beaten a lot more liberal and Democratic candidates by just being better at the work and having candidates who work harder, who work smarter, who raise more money, run better ads, have better messages than by any like weird secret sauce out there from Citizens United or Koch brothers or anything else. Um, I, 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 I'd I say this with tough love. None of the tools that my side uses are secret. None of them are secret. None of them are illegal. Some of them are illegal, but I don't use those, but none of the things that that are out there to win elections are esoteric mysteries. It is a process. It is a skill. It is a discipline. And a lot of the times I've seen Democrats come out of races and say, oh, well, the dark money beat us. And often it didn't. Um, or or Citizens United. Well, Citizens United has not been here for that long. And in my career, we were, we were winning thousands of seats across the country without it. So there is a tendency among some of my Democratic friends to do what my dad used to say, make excuses, not reasons. Now, sometimes you'll see a, a you know, a super PAC money come into a race and splash it and and change the the outcome. Lately, that's more on the blue side than the red side, since the Republican Party has shrunk down to its, like, tiny little stub of what it was. But I, I encourage Democrats to not ascribe to mysterious outside forces what can be laid on the surface of just not doing the hustle, not doing the work, not being out there recruiting great candidates. I mean, Candidate recruitment is a weak spot for Democrats because there is a tendency, and I say this broadly, there is a tendency to want uh, an ideological, homogeneous thing. So they tend to want to recruit candidates in a purpled seat or state that look like candidates that make them happy nationally. So that's when you get, well, actually, let me flip the example. If you gave me 20 Connor lambs, I can go snatch up. 15 more Republican seats for the Democrats. You give me 20 AOCs, no additional. It's going to be where it is. The country is not as woke as Democrats often think it is. Even in places where they think it's woke, it's not as woke. And so, you know, you doing the nut and bolt campaign stuff really matters. Doing good ads, doing good messaging, doing the work of organizing on the ground And I say this a lot, Democrats are holistically bad at politics, but they're extraordinary at parts of it. So sometimes you'll get a candidate who is a very charismatic candidate, great speaker, articulate, brilliant, but he can't organize the field operation. Barack Obama is one of those rare candidates. Bill Clinton is one of those rare candidates. But, you know, too often you get a John Kerry. So it's not the externalities that get you, it's the fundamentals. Uh,
0: Tiffany Cross, I know we're wrapping up the end here. There's also a generational change happening here. We've talked a fair amount about race. You know, Elliot Engel, chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, been in Congress for 30 years, uh, facing a tough race from Jamal Bowman, former middle school principal in the Bronx, Bronx, first time candidate. Uh, Charles Booker is, you know, challenging the establishment, uh, you know, candidate, former Marine combat pilot at Amy McGrath in, in Kentucky. Tell us about sort of the generational fissures you're seeing here.
3: Yeah, I think that's such an issue. And, you know, Rick, I was listening to you talk about some of the things that Democrats do wrong. And I, I found myself agreeing with a, a lot of what you said, because to your question, Greg, I think there is the issue that um, some of these members die in their seats, you know, and it's like you have to groom somebody to pick up the mantle and, and take the next step. And I'm, I'm disappointed that I don't see a lot of that happening. Um, and there's also even when it comes to um, widening the voting electorate. I mean, there are definitely spaces where Democrats benefit from keeping um, the electorate narrow because that will bring in new voter base, younger voters who may not be as loyal to incumbent candidates. So, look, this is a, you know time for introspection on on all sides about what we can do to reimagine um, America and, and be the collective architects on what this next phase of government looks like. And I think it certainly says something. Um, that Charlie Booker came on the scene after being shunned by people in the Beltway and he built this ground swelling in Kentucky um, by being progressive. And, you know, Rick, I do hear you about ALC, but I, I would just add that there are these progressive pockets of the South. So maybe Alabama isn't woke, but Birmingham most certainly is. Um, you know, maybe Georgia isn't woke, but Atlanta most certainly is. So I think there are pockets where there is space for younger, more progressive candidates to find their pathway um, and then perhaps energize a new base of voters. Um, who, like I said, these these younger voters, as we saw with uh, the the TikTok users and and the Trump campaign, it's easy to dismiss that as, you know, a prank, but that was activism. That is is young people saying we do not like the direction of this country and we may not be old enough to vote, but we want to make our voice heard and shame people who are elevating and supporting uh, this man who aims to destroy everything about our democracy. So, I hope to see a sea change um, in some of the the newer, younger voters. And I hope that it pushes Democrats to think uh, a little more innovatively uh, about how they run campaigns. I think Rick actually made some really good points about how how that goes.
0: And we have a last question from YouTube. Steve asked whether, uh, Rick Wilson, Democrats are listening. And I would say the same to Rich Tao. Are Democrats listening to what you're saying?
1: I think Democrats are listening. We feel like at the Lincoln Project, we've sort of illuminated a pathway. We've seen some of the advertising from the Democratic side, both in the super PAC world and the Biden campaign, uh pick up an edge and quality. Um, they're not working to make every ad filled up with every single policy. I mean, that's 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 truly one of the dirty little secrets is we talk about one thing per ad. We don't try to shove everything into it. Um we think the Democrats are listening in that regard. We also think they're listening in, in trying to avoid you know culture war pitfalls and electoral pitfalls going forward. So we feel, like, uh, we feel like we're making a difference and, and having a, a positive impact right now. And I would say with the Swing Voter Project, which is
2: swingvoterproject.com, that all of the videos of all of the sessions are available for free to anybody who wants to watch. So uh, if Democrats want to pull from it or Republicans, it's out there. It's all public. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who asks me my opinion on it. So I'll leave it at that.
0: listening to a conversation about the 2020 election with Tiffany Cross, co-founder and managing editor of The Beat DC and author of Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. Rich Tao, president of the communications firm Engages and creator of The Swing Voter Project. And Rick Wilson, editor-at-large at The Daily Beast and author of Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. To hear more Climate One conversation, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.